So I don't know. I've always sort of lived in language. We've all felt a part of that story. How I look at it is that poetry is not the transcription of experience, it's the transformation of it. You're listening to Retellings, the Washington University Creative Writing Podcast Series. Welcome to Retellings, a part of Hold That Thought at Washington University. I'm Rebecca King, and today I talked to Kelly Link, a writer of magical realism, to discuss how she weaves fairy tale and ghost story elements into her realistic fiction. In the second half of the episode, William McKelvey, an associate professor of English at Washington University, joins me to discuss some of the classic Gothic horror novels of the 19th century, from Frankenstein to Dracula. Kelly Link visited the English department at Washington University as a visiting Hearst professor in 2013. She is the author of three collections of short stories, including Stranger Things Happen, Magic for Beginners, and Pretty Monsters. Her short stories have won three Nebula Awards, a Hugo Award, and a World Fantasy Award. She and her husband, Gavin Grant, run Small Beer Press. We began her interview by discussing some of her favorite books and the impact that reading has had on her life. I moved around a lot with my parents. My life was fairly comfortable. It was just that we packed up every couple of years and went somewhere else. The one thing, though, that you get to carry with you, you know, friends are hard to transport when you're a kid. Books are really, really easy to transport. And it probably explains why I like to go back still and reread the same books over and over again, because I don't have one landscape, which I think of as home, but books really were the thing that moved with me from place to place to place. Writers like Joan Aiken, and there was an anthologist named Helen Hoke, who put together collections of ghost stories, and those anthologies often had writers like M.R. James or Lovecraft or Edith Wharton or some of the ghost story writers that are a little bit harder to find, people like Robert Aikman or L.P. Hartley. And I still go back and reread those writers a lot. More recently, I was a huge fan of Linda Berry's comics, And then there are short story writers, people like Maureen McHugh, Karen Joy Fowler. I really love right now Karen Russell's work, and I am always looking for for new books. So has your list of favorite authors just grown over the years, or has it changed at all? I don't think it changes. You know, there are books that you read when you're a kid that you come back to, and maybe when you read them as an adult, some of the luster is worn off. But typically I go back and I look at those a couple of years later because the the book may have changed again. I loved Tolkien when I was a kid, and I reread The Lord of the Rings every couple of years, and sometimes I like the books better than other times, or sometimes I find the characters kind of annoying, and sometimes I really identify with them. I think when you read a lot... I don't know that your tastes become more sophisticated, but you read for different kinds of things. I don't read just to read good stories. Sometimes I read a book, even if it's bad, in order to see how it's working. It's easier sometimes to see how a book works, even when a book is bad, because you're not swept away by the story anymore. So I always get something out of reading a book. A lot of your stories draw from a kind of culture of stories, whether that be ghosts, zombies, or fairy stories. Can you talk a little more about that tension between what the reader expects and what you do in your stories? Well, I mean, I think the useful thing about how stories work and how 
things like zombie stories or fairy tales work is even if somebody who doesn't read a lot of fantasy or someone who doesn't read a lot of short stories picks up a story that is using fairy tales or zombies, they have enough background knowledge from movies or from television or from the books that they read when they were a kid to be open to that kind of story. And so one, it's kind of an invitation to put aside your critical feeling, things that might put you off engaging in a short story. You think, well, fairy tales or zombies are supposed to be fun. And so you slip a story past the reader's reservations. You know, the reason I think why we like to read fairy tales or ghost stories sometimes is you want to see if people get what they deserve. And it's not even, are people good or bad, but do they do the right thing or the wrong thing? And then what are the consequences? And consequences in those kinds of stories tend to be pretty high. And so there's a lot of narrative energy there. One of my favorite models for a story, I used to think of these as cat in the hat stories, where you have somebody who is easy for the reader to identify with. They're pretty normal person, even if they are weird in certain ways. Everybody's weird in certain ways. And then you have a cat-in-the-hat figure come in who really throws things off balance or sort of gets them into trouble. That's a story pattern that I am always seduced by, and I like writing it. And then the other model is what I think of as the fucked-up person fucking up, you know, in which you can identify with a protagonist who wants something really badly or who is having a really bad day, who encounters the supernatural or whose life is becoming complicated in some way by the fantastic, but whose issues in real life are going to bump up against the demands that the fantastic makes on them. And so you have somebody who maybe doesn't do the right thing, but who does the thing that is understandable because they can't help themselves. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think... It's almost like getting together with your friends and telling stories about people you know who have done something really stupid, and yet you know that person well enough that you can sort of understand why they did it. That's the kind of story that I like to write when I'm working with ghost stories or fairy tales. Has your process changed over the years? Yes. Well, yes and no. I don't write very often, but I write very fast once I have an idea and once I figure out how to start a story. I used to work on my own about... 10 or 12 years ago, I started meeting up with other writers in New York or California, and we would all work in the same room or the same coffee house, and I still do that. I also work some on my own, but I really like the experience of working with other people. But I usually have to end up changing something about my routine every couple of years, or else I will find ways out of writing. I think because I'm not somebody who sits down on a regular basis to work. And my inclination is actually not to write, that given a couple of years, my brain will figure out a way to stop using the method that I found that works. I know a lot of writers as well who find the cafe atmosphere yeah. really useful and just sitting, being in a room with other people working. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Stimulating mm -hmm. and maybe a little bit competitive sometimes. You think, well, they're getting some work done, so I, I better get some done as well. And it's also great to stop every once in a while and talk about writing or show your work to somebody. When you do start with a new story, do you usually plot it out or do you like to surprise yourself as it unfolds? I usually have a couple of ideas that, that may not all feel as if they're attached to the same story, but they're ideas which have certain connecting points. The thing that is always hardest when it's hard is to figure out 
the right kind of voice or character to figure out the, the person in the story, whether it's the narrator, the protagonist who's going to tell the narrative. And once I have the voice down, then it's really a matter of keeping that voice going. And the places where I get stuck are the places where the language is wrong or because I'm, I'm telling the wrong thing, then I have to go back and revise until I find that voice again. And you asked if stories change or if there are things that end up surprising me. As I write, I haven't plotted everything out, so everything is kind of a surprise. And then there are stories where I'm pretty sure I know what the end is going to be. And as I get closer to that end, I can see possibilities that are weirder, more surprising. And I'm always super pleased when that happens. There's a story in Magic for Beginners called Some Zombie Contingency Plans that ends with somebody stealing a child. And I didn't know that that was going to be possible to write until I got there. And that was enormously pleasurable. One of my other favorite pieces of advice that you've given young writers is to write the story that only you can tell and to follow it all the way down the hole. What do you think is the story that only you can tell? You know, I don't think that that story stays the same. I think it changes. One of the things that I've figured out is that if you write a story that you're really burning to write about a particular kind of character or set of circumstances, or even sort of figure out how to use a particular kind of narrative style or or pattern, you do that and then you've burned it. You can't do it again. And so whatever story was that you followed down that hole, you had that one shot at it. And unless you really mess up that story, you're going to have to find another kind of hole to go down. And so I think that's actually probably where I am right now is, is figuring out how to write a different kind of story. And I just, I'm not there yet. Well, I can't wait to see what you do once you have that next Thank story you. finished. It would be great if you could ask me why I can't finish a story right now. And if I could answer you, that would be really useful. But I don't think it would work. <laughs> I wish I could be that sort of muse. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) After meeting with Kelly, I was interested in hearing more about some of the traditions she draws from in her writing, specifically the ghost or monster story. William McKelvey, who studies 19th century British literature and culture, was happy to help me. And a quick warning to those of you who might have skipped some classics, like Jane Eyre and Northanger Abbey, There are spoilers ahead. What qualifies a work to be counted as Gothic literature? Increasingly, scholars of the Gothic emphasize its ubiquity, that it's always been with us and it has multiple forms. And any story that has either a supernatural element or a deep abiding mystery that haunts it can, I think, satisfy that broad definition of Gothic. In English literature, we tend to focus on a more precise chronology, which begins with the publication of a novel in 1764 by Horace Walpole called The Castle of Otranto. So it's considered to be a late 18th century invention that then proliferates and evolves and modifies into all these different subgenres. People used to consider the Gothic culminating in the 1820s. But that meant that increasingly there weren't novels published about castles and abbeys in Italy and France that were holding some terrible secret. Often it was a confined young female. 
And what happened is the Gothic really melded with the realistic novel. Any type of mysterious or terror-causing incident in a realistic novel would be a Gothic space within a realistic narrative. One of the most famous examples of that is the Red Room in Jane Eyre. This is simply a bedroom in a country estate in England, but it becomes a place of terror, but also a place of revelation. Who would you say are the most influential writers of the Gothic? In the late 18th century, its most famous practitioner was Anne Radcliffe. The Italian was her most popular novel published in the 1790s, and it was about a diabolical Italian priest and his schemes for property and sexual pleasure. Matthew Lewis published a book called The Monk. You can see a theme here, and that was about a Gothic villain who is a monk, and it's set in Spain, and he turns out to be no less than Satan. That tradition about going to less developed places of Europe peters out, but it lives on in forms such as Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is published in 1818. 1818's a signal date in the history of Gothic because that's also the date of Jane Austen's parody of the Gothic, Northanger Abbey. And you can tell by that title, she's referring to that literary tradition that you need to have a castle or a desolate ecclesiastical space like an abbey and much of the joke played at the expense of its heroine Catherine Moreland is that there is no terrible secret in that abbey. Its worst secret is that is ruled over by General Tilney who is essentially rude but he's <laughs> not a monster. He, he's rude. Moving up to the mid-century you can't do any worse than reading Bronte's Jane Eyre alongside Wuthering Heights, which has crucial Gothic elements, including its mysterious hero slash villain, Heathcliff. The Woman in White, published by Wilkie Collins in 1859, on your way to Dracula, because you'd have to conclude your reading of 19th century Gothic literature with that work, published in 1897. Something like Stevenson's The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is good. You've mentioned the church a few times mm -hmm. and the important role that religion plays. Can you talk a little bit more about the use of religion? It's important to remember I'm talking about the Gothic tradition for British readers of the 18th and 19th century. They were overwhelmingly Protestant, but they were well aware of their own history and how they went from being a Catholic country to a Protestant country. A lot of times the Gothic represented its villains or the sponsoring mysterious spaces in which Gothic events unfolded as Catholic. The priest was a very titillating and attractive figure because to the Protestant imagination, they were understood as being in inverse ways sexually voracious. Technically, they needed to be celibate. Protestant parsons were married men. Thinking about a powerful celibate male who had access to a man's wives and daughters' most intimate secrets in his role as a confessor was a reliable trope in Gothic narratives. So religion comes up in many different ways. For example, in Dracula, 
Dracula is described as a cultural and religious alien, and he's eventually defeated by a coalition of British men and women who deploy science against his supernatural and primal powers. But they also deploy a lot of religious technologies using consecrated hosts and returning the undead to their dead status by way of burial services. Now you've mentioned that in Gothic literature there's a villain. Mm -hmm. Are they often actually monsters in some way in the sense that Dracula is a monster? The tradition remains in the 19th century that you have real monsters. You also have, to give another example that all your listeners will be familiar with, you have the tradition of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And Mr. Hyde is a powerful and violent simian type of monster. But you also have the monster in Jane Eyre turns out to be the mad woman in the attic, as famous phrase puts it. So that's a text in which you could say its protagonist and other characters are wondering what kind of creature is scurrying about the house at night and doing various destructive and violent things. The text flirts with traditions of ancestral homes being haunted by ghosts. But one of the great revelations of that text is that the monster is a woman who suffers from insanity, and she comes from the West Indies, which is a different kind of problem, which is addressed in that text. But you do continue to have monsters in various kinds in Gothic fictions, as well as these Jamesian instances of imagining monstrous and ghastly figures in the midst of modern society. He said in 1865 in a famous review of a novel that the Gothic has come home and it it explores the mysteries of mysteries which are at our own doors. What can equal the terrors of the cheerful country house in the busy London lodgings? Oh, that's great. I know we've touched on some of these, but... Mm -hmm. The themes and are there particular story arcs then? You mentioned they ended with the monster being defeated, but later I take it gets more ambiguous? That's right. The gothic narrative in some cases is a variation of the scapegoat narrative in which a society is threatened by a particular kind of person or behavior and the society essentially needs to be united in opposition to that scapegoat and is renewed and perhaps cleansed by eliminating that figure. But if you turn these questions over to good literary authors, they're of course interested in the confusion of that narrative, which is often about a type of sympathy for the villain. What other Gothic figures do you see coming up in popular culture? Besides vampires, which true to their nature, never die and never go away. They're always (laughs) coming back. This is what it means to be a vampire. It seems as if there's almost always a variety of the techno-Gothic. That is, some individual or a group or community which has harnessed a particular kind of technology and the consequences of that technology form the subject matter. We could trace that back to Mary Shelley and the positioning of Frankenstein at what eventually got called science fiction. Another revision of 
the primal gothic narrative is detective fiction. Dracula is the detective story, and particularly a band of non-professional detectives who can't appeal to the traditional authorities and institutions of law. Many thanks to Kelly and William for taking the time to meet with us today. If you're interested in hearing a reading from Kelly's short story, The Hortlack, from her collection, Magic for Beginners, you can visit our website. Thanks again for tuning in to Retellings. Join me next time when I meet with Danielle Dutton to discuss the poetics of suburbia and the roadblocks and triumphs of women in publishing.